morning, and please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This morning we will look at a strange and yet familiar passage. One of those Bible stories that once read, once heard is hard to forget, in part because it occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, in part because of the strangeness of the tale. And this morning, I hope and trust that as we study Jesus' encounter with the demoniac, the destruction of the herd of the swine, we will see the glory of Christ. And Luke writes this um, right on the heels of last week where out in the middle of the storm where experienced fishermen are terrified for their lives, convinced that they are drowning, Jesus demonstrates His power and authority. He speaks and rebukes the wind and the waves. They obey. And we were left with the question of the disciples ringing in our ears in verse 25, who then is this? And that question of who then is this? What, What sort of man is this? Just how much power and authority does Jesus possess? Just what, if any, are the limits of of what he can do and the power of his word. That, that question will be developed through the next chapter and a half as we look today at Jesus' power over the demonic realm. Next week, we'll see Jesus' power over sickness and disease, the woman with the flow of blood, and over death as he raises Jairus' daughter. In chapter 9, we'll see Jesus not only has this power, but he has power to give to others. He can, he can grant power as he sends out the 12 apostles, giving them power and authority over demons and over disease. We'll see Jesus' power to give and sustain life as he feeds the 5,000. And all of that culminates, if you look in chapter 9, verse 18, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? You notice that picks up on the question that the apostles asked in the boat. Who then is this? Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Remember, the the apostles didn't fully know the answer to that question back last week in chapter 8. But after seeing this panoply of power, this display of power of Jesus in every realm and every area. Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now that's, that's what Luke is setting out for us, this, this trajectory of seeing Jesus' power and authority. And I really don't think we see it any more greatly thus far in Luke than today's passage. Sure, we've seen Jesus deal with a demoniac back in chapter 4, if you recall, when he was teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there's a man with a spirit who had an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out from him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to another, What is this word? 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. That was one demon. This morning in chapter 8, we're going to look at a man who had at least 2,000 demons. Quite possibly many more than that. This is, this is a group of demons using military language, a legion. This is an entire legion of the armies of hell. And we'll see what happens when they encounter Jesus. And we'll see the supremacy of Christ over the powers of hell. Luke wants us to be confident. Jesus wanted the apostles to be confident. He wants us to have no doubt that the Savior to whom we cling, the Christ to whom we trust, is powerful. He is sufficient. And no force in this universe can ultimately oppose him or resist his will. Let's begin by reading then Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For there, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs were feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from there, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's a familiar passage. This is a strange passage. Strange because, once again, we get insights and glimpses into the world of angels and demons, and quite frankly, every time I get to peek behind the curtain, I am surprised. And there are honestly aspects of this text I still don't understand. I, I don't feel ashamed to say I don't fully grasp demonic psychology. And I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. But I do believe I understand Luke's purpose in telling this. And what is evident and rings through this is just the overwhelming supremacy of Christ over the powers of hell. It is oftentimes popular to imagine that there is this battle going on, a tug of war, a chess match between God and, and Satan. And we're confident that God will win, but it's going to be a close one. 
No, it's not. We see that here. No, it's not. We see the absolute and total supremacy of Christ over the powers of hell. Let's look at this in two points. We're first going to see a legion of demons surrender to Jesus. A legion of demons surrenders to Jesus. Let's first look at the setting that Luke gives us. He gives us the location and he gives us the man. Now there's some dispute even back in the text of, of what the name of this town is. Is Luke naming the specific town or is he naming the general region? And some of your Bibles might say Gerdanes and some say the Gerizines. At the end of the day, both can work and there's some dispute on that. I'm not going to dive into that now. What we know is this. I mean, you get this from Mark as well. This is the other side of the Sea of Galilee and it's a Gentile region. That's the blank. This is the Gerizines opposite Galilee, Gentile territory. We get that clue even from the text because there's a large, large herd of pigs. And pigs are unclean animals. And the Jews would not raise them. Orthodox Jews would not go near them or touch them. They wouldn't eat them. This is an area called the Capolis, a group of cities that formed, comprised a region heavily, heavily Hellenized, heavily Gentile dominated. In that sense, then, this is an uncomfortable place for the apostles to go. They've just got through a storm, and Jesus is bringing them to Gentile territory. Remember, the Jews would avoid Gentile territory, lest the dust from Gentile territory would make them unclean. Not only are they going to Gentile territory, but as they're approaching the shore, what do they see in front of them? A massive herd of pigs. Mark tells us 2,000 pigs. And then behind them, up on the slopes, tombs. This is, this is, and the apostles have got to be very uncomfortable as they approach this land. Gentile territory, overwhelmed with the smell and noise of pigs. Tombs. And, lo and behold, a raving, demon-possessed man. That's the setting. That's the setting. But you've got to remember, and this is important, that as much as Jesus primarily came to seek the lost house of Israel, even early back in Luke's gospel, in, in chapter 2, we got this prophecy concerning him, that he'll be a light to the Gentiles. And Luke is well aware, and he's going to write the book of Acts, where, where he's going to relate how the gospel goes to the Gentiles. So even here is, is the first clear outreach to the Gentiles. And sadly, it will be rebuffed. Here is Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee with his apostles. They rage through the storm, and Luke begins by saying, then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. The went then, after the storm had ceased, and after they were all filled with amazement and wonder, they finally got back to the business of sailing the boat, and they crossed. And there they met a demon-possessed man. And this man is in a horrible, horrible state of affairs. Now, Luke's narrative breaks up the, the backstory on this man into two sections, you'll notice. First, what we have and what Luke wants us to see is this man falling at Jesus' feet. He, he arranges the narration, so that's front and center. But what we get is this. In verse 27, For a long time he had worn no clothes and not lived in a house but among the tombs. And then in verse 29, we get the second piece of his backstory. After Jesus, we hear that he had commanded the unclean spirit. For many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man is demon-possessed. Now, that's, again, another category we don't deal with very often these days. 
Um, it seems to be that the recognition of demon possession is a unique feature to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Not that the demons are inactive or not operative, but there simply are no clear examples in the Old Testament of anyone being demon-possessed. There's no instruction to the churches in the epistles about dealing with demon possession. It really seems as though that when Jesus and his apostles are rocking, walking around, it's like he, his presence blows their cover and we get these exorcisms, and we get these encounters that simply don't occur in the previous Old Testament and don't occur in the instructions of the church. Again, not that demons aren't operative, not that they're not doing things. Paul talks about he's not unaware of the schemes of the adversary. But events like this really seem to be limited in time and space, localized around the incarnation of Jesus. So let's take a look at the pitiable condition of this possessed man. The first thing we learn is that he was possessed by a legion of 2,000 or more demons. Quite possibly more. The Latin word, legioi, um, from which we get the word legion, is a group of soldiers 5,600 large. So however many demons are in this man, it's it's enough that grabbing a a specific term that meant 5,600 men in a military unit was an appropriate, reasonable answer. We know there's at least 2,000 because Mark tells us there was 2,000 pigs. And presumably only one demon can possess one pig at a time. Presumably, again, we're dealing again with, with, with demons and angels. And so there's, we gotta have a certain amount of uncertainty here. A lot is the basic principle. A lot. And we've seen the torment of just one man back in chapter four with one demon. And here we have a a phalanx of the army of hell in this man. And nothing in the text, let me make another point, nothing in the text suggests this man is particularly responsible for his condition. Nothing in the text, Jesus doesn't rebuke him, why would you let this happen to yourself? Um, In fact, in the scriptures, again and again and again in the gospels, the, the, the people afflicted by demons are treated almost as though it's a disease. They're as culpable in that sense as you might be for catching a cold. I, I tend to think that as Jesus breaks down humanity, say in John 8, that there's the sons of the devil and there's the sons of light. There are those who are born into this world, like all of us were, sons of the devil, meaning we are desirous to do his will. That's what Jesus says in John 8. And I, and I tend to think that in, the, in that sense, any unbeliever potentially is a sitting duck for this. Um, we tend to think that surely he must have played to the Ouija board or surely he must have gotten involved in the occult. And those are not good things, but the suggestion that doing those things makes you more likely, more responsible for this type of situation is not a belief I can see backed up by the Bible. This is purely a man to be pitied. This is a man to, to feel empathy for. Jesus has no problem at other times telling people, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Um, when, he, when he deals with the paralyzed man by the pool, implying that this man might have brought on his condition. There's, there's never a rebuke like that for the demoniacs. This man is someone to pity, someone to, to, who our heart should go out to, Jesus' heart goes out to him. He's possessed by a legion of over 2,000 demons. And even though he's from the city, he was born in the city or lived in the city, he doesn't live there anymore. He had not lived in a house, but among tombs. And just think about that, driven from human society, finding more comfort finding more um, in common with the dead, naked. Um, That's a double 
torment. There's the torment of the shame of nakedness. You know, Adam and Eve were naked and they were ashamed. And also the exposure to the sun, the sunburns, the, the exposure to cold, all the elemental exposure. He deals with the shame of nakedness and the pain of the sun by day and the cold of the night. Not only that, we learn that he was regularly out of his mind. Now, one of the the things we get here is there seemed to be some cycle to this. If you look down in in verse 29, for many a time it had seized him. And so there's some implication that that his own lucidity and his own clarity and his own self-control waxed and waned. We don't know how much he had, but there were worse times than others, times when he was seized by this legion of demons. And when that would happen, he would be bound. I mean, this is the only way that his, his... Countrymen could attempt to treat him. And when he'd be raving and wild, they'd bind him up. And somehow the demons transferred to him supernatural strength. He'd break apart the bonds and then like an animal be driven into the desert. This is how this man lived. Pitiable, awful existence. Thousands of demons inside of him. And he's going to encounter the living Christ. And again, as I said, the way Luke lays the narrative out, he wants to draw our attention to the main event here. And you look at this even out of order. Luke says, when um, Jesus had stepped out onto land, as if almost to insinuate this is the immediate thing that happened. I think Mark's gospel makes that even clearer. Jesus is just setting foot out of the boat. He saw Jesus, he cried out, and fell down before him. What's the event that we're looking at now? Point B, total capitulation. Total capitulation. This is a complete and total surrender. Now, don't mistake this for worship. There's some similarity to what Peter did in in chapter 5, where Peter falls down at at Jesus' feet. He says, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man, but it becomes clear. Peter wants to follow Jesus. Peter loves Jesus. Peter wants to be his disciple. But this, this... army of hell, living in one man, sees Jesus, the terror, the fear is so great, he knows there's no escape. I mean, notice, he doesn't try to run away, he doesn't try to run away and throw some rocks at him. It, the only possible avenue of escape he has is to come forward and just surrender. This, this is what happens in wars at times, when you see an absolutely unstoppable force. You just, before you start firing, we put up the white flag and we, we give up. It's not we're switching sides. It's not that the demons want to honor and worship Christ. It's simply, we see what their motive is, self-preservation. We don't want to go to the abyss, so we surrender. But they just fall down, prostrate in front of Jesus in absolute total surrender. And notice they identify Jesus rightly. Now there's confusion in the disciples' mind. We just saw last week, who is this man? No confusion among the demons of hell. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is the title that was given to him by Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. He'll be great, Gabriel said to Mary. He'll be called the Son of the Most High God. Mary probably didn't anticipate firstly called that by demons. This is exactly the title predicted. The Son of the Most High God. And then, three times, Luke tells us, the demons beg. Again, this is surrender. This isn't a negotiation. They're not, they're not saying, well, we'll surrender if. There's a complete and total surrender. They fall down at his feet, and then they beg. Verse 31, they begged him. Verse 32, they begged him. Verse 28, I beg you. 
This is what defeated people do. This is what completely surrendered people do. Again, don't mistake them. They're not switching sides. They don't love Jesus. But they recognize his power and they are terrified of it. Again, let that blow out of your mind. Any notion that there's some real battle in the sense of the outcomes in question between the God of this world and God. Jesus doesn't initiate this. The, the demon sees when just runs and surrenders. There's, there's no match. Uh, thousands of demons don't even entertain for a moment. They, they have a chance in hell, pardon my pun, at raising any resistance to Jesus. They just surrender. Who is this? They, we're seeing who he is. The disciples, who is this man? The demons are giving us some idea. What do they beg him? Three things. First, very, very hypocritically, they beg him not to torment them. Don't torment us. What have you been doing to this man but tormenting him? When they enter the pigs and we see the turmoil, the confusion, the self-destruction, we're going to get some idea of a picture of what's going on inside of this man. These demons who are happy to torment this man, drive him from society, shame him by nakedness, expose him to the ravages of the sun, coldness, isolate him from human society. But oh no, they don't want to be tormented. Oh no, they don't want to suffer. And they beg him not to torment them. Again, we may not think of Jesus this way. Well, surely Jesus wouldn't torment anybody. Jesus is nice. Jesus is loving. He is. He's loving. And he will preside over the judgment of these very same demons in hell. Listen to Revelation 14. He will drink the wine of the wrath of God, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus will be present. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So their fear of Jesus tormenting them is a very real fear. Very real fear. Just now's not the time. That's not what Jesus first entering into this world was for. It's a very real fear. And they beg him not to be tormented. Secondly, they beg him not to be sent into the abyss. This is drawing on an Old Testament term. This is, this is the bottomless pit. This is the picture of the trench. Like you think of the Marineris Trench. That's the picture, the deep, 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 deep waters. This is the term, same word used in the Septuagint in Genesis 1-2 about the Spirit of God was over the deeps. In the Psalms, it's used to refer to where the dead go. And, and in Romans 10 as well, but probably most notably in Revelation chapter 9, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. This is ultimately where, where all of Satan and his demons and all of unrepentant, unbelieving humanity will end. Revelation 20, 1-3, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized to the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. 
The demons know that's where they're headed. They know their cause will fail. They know they are defeated. And they're trying to get as much damage and cause as much mischief as they can now. But again, they have no illusions. Their side will triumph. They, they, they understand they will lose. And they just beg him not to send him into the abyss. Third, then, they begged him to let them enter the large herd of pigs. And that's the part I don't fully understand. I can freely confess, I don't know why demons would find it preferable to be in pigs. Um, previously, and in Luke 4, when Jesus um, commanded the demon out of the man, no, no mention of the demon going into something else. There is, however, something fitting. Initially, the, the man is identified as, as de- the man with the demon, but notice in 29, Luke describes him slightly differently. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. So this is an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit is going to go into an unclean animal. Something fitting there. They begged him not to torment them. They begged him not to send them into the abyss. And they begged him to let them enter the large herd of pigs. And amazingly, Jesus grants all three requests, doesn't he? He doesn't torment them. He doesn't then and there send them to the abyss. And he lets them enter the herd of pigs. Notice the grace of our Lord. And they enter the pigs. And then we read what happens Next, he gave them permission, verse 32. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank. That word for rushed, same exact word used in verse 29 about the demons would drive the man out into the desert. Now, the other part I'm not entirely sure about is why the demons, upon begging to go into pigs, would then destroy the vessels that they begged to go into. It's not entirely clear whether the demons intended this result or whether simply the mere presence of the demons so confused and so terrified and so tormented the pigs that not knowing what they're doing, they just were driven. They just went down the hill and drowned. What is slightly ironic is what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the abyss, the deep sea. What happens? The pigs go and drown in the Sea of Galilee. And, and this, is, this is a lot of pigs, Mark tells us we're talking about a herd of 2,000. And I, I did a little bit of research this morning, and this is important to grasp the size and the scope of this. Mike, Mike Doty helped me. 2,000 pigs would eat over 7,000 pounds of food a day. 7,000 pounds of food. And, and if we were trying to, if these were full grown pigs and they were being brought to Iowa to be sold, they would generate in revenue somewhere between a quarter and half a million dollars in value. This is a lot of pigs. This is a lot of destruction of property. So much so that some people reading this really kind of think Jesus is being a jerk. Why did Jesus let the demons enter the pigs? Those poor pigs. You're kind of missing the point here. No, no, no. There are, pe- there are people. The same people that don't want to kill a spotted owl but are fine killing babies, the same people struggle with this. Here's the point. The man is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. In Jesus' mind, this man is more precious and more valuable than 2,000 pigs. Also, allowing the demons into the pigs serves as a graphic visual proof This man is fully delivered. Because remember, we we already heard the demon's control would wax and wane. And so when the crowds show up, and they do show up, and they probably wouldn't have shown up if 2,000 pigs didn't race down a slope and drown. 
when they show up, there's no doubt. Maybe he's just having a good day. Maybe he's just in a good patch. No, they're going to be told the report of what happened. And so Jesus allowing the demons into the pigs serves as conclusive proof that he has done what he said he would do, that the demons obeyed. And after all, our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does he not? These are Jesus' pigs to do with what he wants. One human life is worth more than 2,000 pigs. Not that we should be cruel to our animals, not that we should mistreat them. But this, this, this precious man who Jesus sought and would buy is more valuable. We've seen the legion of demons surrender to Jesus. How powerful, who is this man? A, an army of hell sees him, and upon seeing him, runs to him. We surrender, we give up. Please don't, please don't hurt us. That's, that's how powerful he is. Pause and think on that when you consider that this God lives in you. Paul, in Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Greater is he who is in us than he who is without. 1 John 4.4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome the world, for he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. And it's not, in case you couldn't tell here, it's not that like he's a little bit greater. The one who's in the world is this great. Oh, it's... An army just, we surrender, we give up. Please don't, please don't torment us. And that is the spirit that God put into you and to me if you know Jesus Christ. We, that's why John can say, whoever has the spirit, who's walking by the spirit, who's living by faith, has overcome this world. And we have an adversary out there. But the only reason we're going we're gonna to fall into his traps and snares is because we're not walking in the Spirit and we're not trusting in God. If we will walk in the Spirit, if we will trust in, the God, in God, we will overcome. We will have this type of victory. So now let's look at three differing responses. Three differing responses. We'll pick it up in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled. So there's probably dozens or more of herdsmen given the charge of a herd of pigs worth anywhere from a quarter million to half a million dollars by today's standards. I mean, understand this would wreck the local economy. People are going to be out of business. This is going to have huge economic repercussions for the region. So they are terrified and they run and tell. They fled and told it in the city and in, in the country. So word is spreading. Then the people came out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked them to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him, be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We see the response of the man, we see the response of the people and the response of the Lord. Three differing responses. First, and probably front and center, is the difference of this man. It is night and day. Luke has masterfully, everything he laid out before has been flipped around and rectified and redeemed. Before, he was naked. 
Now he's clothed. Before he was not in his right mind, now he is. Before he was crying out in a loud voice, now he's quiet. Before he was out of control, now he's sitting at Jesus' feet. Before he, he eschewed human company and society, now he's sitting among Jesus and his apostles. In every possible way, Jesus has redeemed, fixed, and this man is changed and different. He was clothed, sane, quiet, and sitting at Jesus' feet. Sitting in the position of a disciple. In fact, we're going to see that in a minute. Jesus readily accepts this man as a disciple. And the blanks here are this. What's changed? Discipleship and love. Discipleship and love. Now, the demons feared Jesus. And James tells us the demons believe God is one and tremble. What they don't do is love him. What they don't do is want to be near him. And that's the difference. Having right orthodoxy, believing the right things are true, only qualifies you to be a demon. If you don't love them, if you don't delight in them, you're doing no better than the demons. The demons have very accurate Christology in the Gospels. They don't make mistakes over who he is. The demons don't get around and say, now, was he really God? Or... They know. They don't hold seminars and argue. No, they, they have got orthodox theology and they hate it. They want nothing to do with it. Make no mistake, the reason they surrendered is their own self-preservation. We don't want to be tormented. Maybe he's here to throw us into the pit now, so let's just go surrender and, and, and beg him not to. Look at this man. He wants to go with Jesus. He's sitting at his feet like a disciple. He's begging before, get away from me. Get away. Now, begging him that he could come with him. He was begging to go with Jesus. Discipleship and love. Jesus took a man with a thousands of demons and turned him into a disciple. And that's the power of the gospel that is offered to us. You know, people sometimes think, I'm too bad, I've gone too... Don't think you're doing better than he was. Just, just a guess. Could be wrong. I'm guessing wherever you're at today, you're, you're in a better state than this man was before he encountered Jesus. And Jesus took this man, and by the power of his word, the power of who he is, transforms him into a disciple. He makes him whole. And of course, for us, that's the, the option for us, that if we would turn and trust in the Lord Jesus, he promises the same transformation. It's also interesting to note that this is the man, the only request made in this passage that Jesus says no to is the disciples' request. The demon begs him three times, and it's yes, yes, yes. The people say, uh, could you please go away? And he says, yes. The demon-possessed man begs him, can I come with you? Can I come with you? No. Just because you're a disciple doesn't mean Jesus will give you everything you ask, but he will be good to you. And we'll see that when we get to that. The response of the man, discipleship and love. Then we get the response of the people. The blanks here, fear and rejection. Fear and rejection. There's nothing new in Luke's gospel for fear to be the response. We've already seen this numerous times when Jesus performs miracles. We need only look back to chapter 4. 
Verse 36, after he commanded the demon to come out of the man, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out of them. People respond to fear to the angels announcing Jesus' birth. People responded with fear to many of Jesus' works. But at least in Israel, that fear was coupled with a wonder and an awe and excitement. Not so here. They were afraid, and they wanted him to go away. And that's just terrible. It's terrible. Here is Jesus making his forced foray into Gentile country. Here is Jesus showing that as much as he is Israel's Messiah, he is a Messiah at large for Gentiles as well. And he just sets foot on the land, and what does he do? He does good, and he delivers a man, and he doesn't un questionable work of power. Notice the people aren't confused about whether or not he has power, whether a miracle is taken, but it has. They're aware of it perfectly well, and they're terrified, and they want him to go. And the only reason I can think of, and Luke doesn't make this explicit, but the only reason I can think of to explain the difference is this is also the only miracle Jesus has done so far in Luke that involves massive property damage. I want us to wonder if these people, and I'm guessing a large part of the local economy had to do with these pigs and all the measures involved, the people tending for them and people feeding them and people butchering them and people going to markets and selling them, can't help but think if the thought was if this man stays even though he clearly is a prophet and he clearly is with God, might it not have worse and worse consequences for our business? It's only my guess, but I, I think that's pretty sound. And so if that is true in so doing, what we learn is these Gentiles care more about their business, care more about money, care more about a life that doesn't involve tumultuous events like this than they do about the truth and finding out who is this one with such power. In fact, to some degree, I think this illustrates the very warning Jesus gave just a little earlier in chapter 8. Go back to verse 18. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing that is hidden will be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. Take care, then, how you hear, which to the one who has more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Here, light has come. Unmistakable light. A, a man in torment is now man whole and at peace. And these people are more concerned about, but our pigs. But if you just turn that into, but my bank account, but my job security, my savings and retirement account, I think maybe we can start to feel a little sympathy for where they're coming from. Jesus' presence puts all of that in turmoil. And make no mistake, his presence in our lives does as well. We see the way the wind's blowing. We see the climate in this country. And it is very easy to envision faithful disciples of Christ having heavy economic costs for that, is it not? But he's worth it. The, the, the field that is the treasure that is buried in the field, when the man comes across it, in his joy, he sells all that he has to take possession of that treasure. These people, I'm guessing, valued their property, valued their same old routine more than investigating 
who this Messiah is. I mean, the Jewish Messiah goes to the Gentiles and they say, please go away. Also note, they want the same thing the demon wanted, right? Except the demon was more polite. The demon said, tell you what, you want to be here? How's about we go? Well, we'll just take right off. Those pigs will do. See you later. These people, we'll stay here. Can you leave? I mean, if these people at least had the respect the demons had, can you give us a couple days? We'll move our city. We'll just go migrate over there. How's about that? If you feel like coming here, we'll just give us a little while. We'll pack up and we'll go. The demon shows more respect than these people do. It makes you wonder who really is in the more pitiable state, the demoniac or the inhabitants of the Decapolis. Of surely the demoniac was in more temporal and immediate agony. But who really is more blind? Who really is more to be pitied? These people, not even realizing it, have the same agenda the demons had. We don't want to be near you. We don't want to suffer your consequences. Leave us alone. What have we to do with you? Can you get back on your boat and go? How does the Lord respond to that? Might be tempted to think he'd call down fire from heaven. Jesus responds with judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. No, he doesn't call down fire from heaven on them. He does something in many respects more tragic. He gets back in the boat and he leaves. He doesn't come back to them. Light has come into the world. Light has come to the Gentiles. And they say, can, can, you, can you cover that light up, please? Can you put a bushel basket over it, please? We don't want that light. And Jesus said, okay. C.S. Lewis once famously said that there are two types of people in this world. Those who will say to God the Father, thy will be done, and those to whom God the Father says, okay, your will be done. And here, tragically, Jesus grants the request. It's judgment. The light leaves the Decapolis. The light leaves the Gerasenes. Jesus granted the people's request. So a request so very similar to the request of the demons. And yet, note the mercy. You know, I struggled when I first read this. The part I struggled with wasn't the pigs. The part I struggled was with this guy. I so empathize with this guy. I mean, just think about it. He's been in torment. He's been in torment. And then here's Jesus, and Jesus heals him, and Jesus makes him whole. And now all he wants to do is, I want to go with Jesus. I want to be with, please, please, begging. Let me go with you. And I remember when I first read this, I'm like, Jesus, let him get on the boat. <laughs> And yet Jesus, in an act of kindness and mercy to these people who had rejected him, determined that even in answering their requests and leaving, he would leave them a witness. He would leave them some small amount of light. The only request that Jesus says no to in this entire path, the three requested demons, yes, yes, yes. The unbelieving, rejecting request of the Decapolis, okay, sure thing. This demoniac begging, pleading, let me get in the boat with you, please, no. But it's ultimately a kindness. Just, just look a little further ahead in Luke to chapter 9. How does chapter 9 begin? Jesus called together the 12. He gave them power and authority over the demons to cure disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. But before Jesus sent the apostles out, 
with a mission. Who did he send out first? Who was the first missionary Jesus commissioned? This man. What an honor. What a privilege. Jesus commissioned the man to preach good news to the very people who had just rejected him. What mercy. What kindness. Jesus didn't reject this man as a disciple. Some people have suggested that. He had too many demons. He was too... Chapter 8 started telling you that some of the women who traveled with Jesus had demons as well. That's not the issue. Jesus didn't reject this man as a disciple. He promoted him and sent him out as the first wave. Like he was head of the class. You see, the other guys are still wondering who Jesus is. This guy knows who Jesus is, so he can send him out now. In fact, the, the word Jesus uses to relate, to declare in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you is the exact same word Luke uses to describe what he's doing in writing this book to Theophilus. I'm here to relate, to declare to you what's going on. Jesus' commission to this man was something similar to what Luke's doing. He's doing it with words. Luke's doing it in writing. Both of them are to declare what God has done. Notice something else. Another answer to the question of who is Jesus. Jesus tells him in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Apparently, this man concluded the command to say what God had done for him was the command to say what Jesus had done for him. Who is Jesus? He's God. Who is this who calms the storm? It's God. The demons know who it is. This man knows who it is. By chapter 9, verse 20, the, the apostles will know who it is. And we, the reader, now get to know who this is. This is who Jesus is. He is the sovereign power over the powers of hell. He is the one of whom an entire army of demons is terrified and trembled, and yet he is so compassionate and so tender even as these people reject him, he determines to leave a gospel witness to them. Even as they cover the light, he leaves some. This Jesus, who values this man more than a massive herd of pigs, this is our Savior. This is the one to whom we have to do. And so, what's, what's our response then to be? Will we respond like the disciples with further confusion? Well, we respond perhaps like the Decapolis inhabitants. This might, this might interfere with my plans for my life and my job and my business. You know, if you just please go away. Well, we respond like this demon-possessed man. You've made me whole. You've saved me. I just want to go and be with you. And even if you don't always give me what I ask for, and even if you don't always say yes to my request, I will obey your command. I'm willing to be a witness. I'm willing to go declare to others what God has done. And that's the, that's the choice in front of us. Now let's close in prayer as we prepare for communion. Lord God, we just marvel at the majesty and the power and the beauty and the glory the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, if we're honest, we recognize that in many ways the demons have a greater fear for you than we do at many times. It's so easy for us to take you cavalierly, lightly. 
Oh Lord, let us give you the reverence, the worship that is due you. Not simply a fear, but a fear mingled with love and joy. Knowing that you love us, that you have redeemed us, that you have made us whole, just as you made this man whole. You have work for us to do just as you had work for him to do. Lord, now as we draw near to your table, let us do it in a way that honors you. We would rightly discern what we are doing. Declaring to one another and to the watching world your death and resurrection until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could call the ushers forward now. We will prepare for communion. The Apostle Paul... In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, relates to us the significance. Now he received this memorial meal. And make no mistake, this cup and this bread is just exactly that. It's grape juice and bread. Like all symbols, the power of the symbol is not in and of itself what the symbol is, but what the symbol points to. The rainbow is the symbol of God's promise not to flood the earth. My wedding ring is not my marriage. It is the symbol that points to my wedding vows. This meal points to our continued sustenance and our continued feeding upon God's true bread from heaven. This is what gave us life. and This is what continues to strengthen us. So this meal is a sign is what Paul says. For when I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Now make sure as the men pass this out that you take two cups. The bread and the wine are in both cups. Take the full stack. And as this is passed, let's, let's just prepare our hearts that we might do this rightly.
Apostle Paul in the same passage warns us, let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we would not be condemned along with this world. Let's just have a moment of silent prayer examining our hearts. Oh Lord God, we confess that even as you have cleansed us, we have again and again become unclean. We have walked in darkness. We have loved other things. We have time and time again been faithful to you, but you remain faithful. Oh, Lord God, would you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts? Would you create in us a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within us, Lord, give us eyes to see things that we are symbolizing here. Give us hearts of faith to draw near with a clean conscience. Lord God, would you purify your bride? We might honor you through this sign. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes that the night when he was betrayed, Jesus broke the bread, and when he'd given thanks, said, now we're going to give thanks. Lord God, we thank you for the sacrifice that was once and forever given. We thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that once and for all paid for our sins. Lord, this, this bread that we eat, this cup that we drink, in no way, in no way contributes to that but it points again and again to that reality. He was broken and crushed for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. By his stripes we are healed. By the power of his blood we are forgiven. So Lord God, we thank you for the bread that has come down from heaven, the true bread that gives life that was sacrificed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. He said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pass your cups to the ushers as they go down the aisle. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.